Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Kristen Dolan. Kristen is the founder and CEO of 605, and we're going to dig in there deeply and talk about what you're doing, the latest business that you have founded and are leading. Kristen's had a legendary career. Um, she sits on the boards of some of the greatest companies that this country has ever produced, among them AMC Networks, Madison Square Garden Entertainment, Wendy's, and Revlon. I don't know how you have time for your day job. She's also a mom and is genuinely one of the nicest people who I've gotten a chance to know over the last several years. She's been in our stages many times, and we are thrilled to have you. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much, Matt. So, Kristen, you have a really interesting and pretty humble background. And I know you went to Albany, that you went to LIU uh, and to Pace. And it doesn't seem like any of your academic studies connected directly, though they always connect indirectly, um, to your career path. And I'd love to talk about those early days and what you thought then you might end up doing versus the career path and where it took you. That's actually a great question. Um, thank you for asking. So undergrad at SUNY Albany, um, you know, first of all, I got a great education for a very low amount of money, which was important to me at the time. And I actually now I'm happy that I continue to work with SUNY Albany um, to help students that maybe don't have the opportunities that other people might to go to what really is a great school. And when I was at SUNY, I actually majored in English um, with a business minor. And my thinking, because I'd always been a reader, was that I wanted to go into publishing. So when I graduated from there, I took um, two months off and went cross country, um, drove cross country 14,000 miles in eight weeks, which was amazing and I highly recommend. Um, but then from there, I actually enrolled in a program at Pace, which is now, gosh, almost 30 years old, but I was able to get a master of science in publishing. And so what that was really all about was sort of a specialized MBA. So you did all of the typical things you do with an MBA, finance, legal, but it was all around aspects of publishing. And at the time, magazines, books, a lot more of actual physical reading material was, was a really big part of our culture and our society. So I thought, great, I can put my love of reading um, and my interest in business together. So I got this degree. Um, and one of the things that I was able to do while I was there is I got an internship at AMC Networks. So this is 1989 can do the math, I'm 56. Um, and when I had to write my thesis, my master's thesis for PACE for this publishing program, I actually wrote about um, the magazine stand and the similarities between the magazine stand and the cable lineup. So, you know, a, a wide variety of things with specialized types of publications, but this was, you know, relatively early, not at the beginning of cable, but still pretty young, like AMC Networks at the time had about 25 million subscribers. I started uh, a week after Josh Sapan, who eventually, you know, went all the way up now to vice chairman of AMC Networks. So there were some really amazing people that were working there at the time. So for me, right out of grad school, it was a huge opportunity. Um, and then my other degree is also tangentially related. Um, I always wanted to get the literature degree. So after I had my first son, who's now almost 17, I went back to, uh, to CW Post to LIU because it's near where we live. And I did my second master's at night and I got the MA in, publish in, uh, in English literature. So it all, I think, connects to in some ways where I am now. But you know, that internship at AMC really got me into cable. Um, and then it's funny because I did leave for a brief time and I was fascinated in listening to your interview with, Ma with Molly Spillman the other day because she came up through publishing and then into cable and then into ad tech, which is, is similar to my journey. Um, not as illustrious as hers, but <laughs> still working on it. Um, but I left uh, AMC when I was about 27 because a job opened up at Random House. And I thought, well, I'm finally going to get to work in publishing. And I got there and they were very haughty. Um, the people there were lovely, but it, it was the old school of like books were king. You know, books were good. We'd maybe accept magazines. And they basically said to me that cable television, they weren't interested because they said they don't pay attention to soft media. So I got there as a, as a real outsider coming from cable and lasted about six months. And then my dream job at the time opened up at AMC. So I went back and basically stayed in that industry for another 28 years before moving into ad tech uh, five years ago. So great, great story, Kristen. And 
you know, internships are such an important part of, I think we're about the same age. I'm just a touch older than you. And I also look back very fondly uh, and refer to all the time to internships that I did in my case at the Atlanta Journal Constitution and then the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. Talk about what you saw at AMC as an intern because that was really early days. Very early. So, you know, wasn't an ad supported network yet. Um, distribution was about 25 million, as I said, and that was that was early in the days. So what was fun for me is when I did start working there um, as a regular employee, I worked in the marketing department and eventually my boss, Gemma Toner, who's another entrepreneur who worked her way up through cable and now has her own um, startup called Tone, if anyone's interested, just a fascinating kind of startup that does um education and, and support for women um, in different companies. They, they provide instructional and educational videos that they license to companies for mentorship through and in, almost like internship and mentorship, mentorship through videos. But when I started there um, and I went out into the field as an affiliate marketing manager, it was early on in the days of cable. So there were dozens and dozens of different cable systems and operators that we would visit. So for eight years, I traveled um, predominantly through New York and New England was my territory and then eventually mid-Atlantic region. And so my job was really to go out with partnered with the salesperson to actually sell the cable operators to carry AMC networks. And at the time it was just AMC. It was American movie classics. Um, and then eventually they want, they launched what is now WeTV. But at the time it was just one network. And I spent my days, we had mandatory client meetings. So we had to do five a week and travel. So I traveled about 125 to 150, you know, puddle jumper flights all over New York and New England and the mid-Atlantic states for eight long years. Um, and we would go in and, and pitch the network too. And you could do dinner at an Olive Garden and the general manager of the cable system at the time, because everything was decentralized, they could make the decision right there to, to carry your network. And so it's been really interesting to me growing up in this business, because now many of the people that I called on back in the early 90s are all, you know, running these big networks or, you know, are still in the industry in these illustrious positions. And when, when we run into each other, there really is somewhat of a, a collegial feel because we all came from the same background. I mean, this industry is fascinating in the sense that people really stay with it for very long amounts of time. So it was it was a really fun time, I have to say. And a lot of folks united by common experience, as you refer to. Yeah, all the reps, we'd see each other. You know, there was the New England cable show, the Maryland, Delaware, D.C. cable show, the Atlantic cable show in Atlantic City every year, which was huge. Um, and then all the national shows. So you really would run into the same people who were, you know, everybody was expanding. And at the time, I think there was more capacity on the dial for networks than there were channels to fill them up. So it was it was a fun time to be in sales and a great time to be in a young and exciting industry. Absolutely. And somewhere along the line, you also started to get involved in product development and management. Yeah. And um, so I was at AMC for eight years. And then I started working with um, a bunch of folks who are still in the industry, particularly David Klein, who runs Spectrum Reach for Charter. Um, he was my boss in what we were starting to do. Um, what we were creating as a startup, which was called Radio City Television. So the idea at the time, again, I'm dating myself, was to look at the opportunity to create a library of high definition television content that would initially be sold on pay-per-view, but would eventually be built up to have a library that we could run on the television networks. And at the time, AMC was still 100% owned by Cablevision. It was before it was spun off. So I got pulled in to help David launch Radio City Television, um, which included the Western show. And some people who listen to your show, I'm sure will remember this. Um, it was the Western show. I don't remember what year, it was the early 90s, but we did promotional stunts around this launch of Radio City Television. So we had the Rockettes there in, An in Anaheim, and we did a stunt which was creating the world's biggest kick line. And we had the Marine Corps of Engineers there. We had the Rockettes in their holiday costumes, and we basically got all the attendees of the show that we could rally to come to this giant parking lot. We gave them each a Radio City Television windbreaker in bright red. And then we got everybody lined up and the Rockettes uh, taught them like a 
maybe 25 second routine. We filmed the whole thing from the rooftops and basically created what, you know, ultimately we had hoped would go into the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's longest kick line. And that was a promotional stunt. And the other thing we did at that show, which I know people still remember, is we did room drops. And the room drops that we did included a mannequin leg, one leg in a fishnet stocking with a dance shoe. And we had them placed in each hotel room for the cable show, like kind of kicking out from behind the curtains. So when you checked into your room, there was Radio City Television swag around the room. And then there was this rocket leg kicking out from behind. And then there was a full-sized um, cardboard cutout of an actual rocket. So this was all in the room. And when people were leaving the show at the end of the week on the flights, there were stories and it, it made like cable facts and a bunch of other things of people like they brought home the leg and the mannequin. So the overhead compartments on the flights out of Anaheim had all these like, and they were all right legs. We got like 1600 right legs from mechanic, you know, from uh, mannequins and 1600 right shoes. And they were all kind is shoved up in the air in the airplane compartments overhead when people took them home as souvenirs. So it was again one of those crazy stories from our industry that uh, you know is all done for promotional awareness um, to launch Radio City Television as a network. And that all came about at that time. There was common ownership. I guess it's still common ownership. Then. Yeah, and HDTV was like a really big deal at the time. You know, it was like there were no HDTV networks on the dial. So the idea of creating this content was sort of hopefully prescient in that by the time HDTV became a more common thing, um, we would have content available. And that's also the time which some people remember that that my father-in-law, Charles Dolan, launched his own satellite um, and supported a, a new satellite company called Boom which was designed to compete with DirecTV and DISH and would carry um, predominantly high-definition content. So let's talk about your father-in-law a little bit since you mm -hmm. brought him up. Um, such a legendary career, still going strong today in his mid-90s. Yep. Not many people remember that it was Charles Dolan who created HBO. Yes, he did. It's it's really interesting. He and um, and Mrs. Dolan, Helen Dolan, um, they started out. They both went to school in Ohio together. Um, that's where they met when they were in their twenties. They got married when they were both twenty three. Um, they're both now ninety five, um, and they created a. a um, a business where they would go around and they would film local sports at all different venues near where they lived in Cleveland. And then they would bicycle those movies that they recorded around to news stations so they could air them on the newscasts, you know, of local sports. And so when they moved to New York, I guess the idea came up that they could do something similar with, with films. And so he put together the idea for HBO, which was eventually purchased um, by Warner Media. And then he took the proceeds from that sale and used that to license um, basically the, the opportunity to wire Manhattan for, for cable television. And that was Manhattan Cable or Sterling Cable in Manhattan. And then eventually sold those licenses, I think, to Paragon, which used to be the cable system in you know up, uptown in New York, and um, used the money from that then to wire the suburbs. Um, which eventually became, you know, Cablevision, which when we sold the company in 2016 had 10,000 miles of fiber optic cable wired all around, basically in a donut all around Manhattan in Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. Um, so it all just kind of grew from there. And he also invented his first network was Bravo before it was sold to NBC. So he launched Bravo because of he and Mrs. Dolan's love of opera and ballet. Um, so they created an arts channel. And then of course the whole News 12 networks, you know, the first ever regional local news, and then also obviously AMC. So really amazing the things that he's, he's created and done. Absolutely incredible. And the, the common thread here, which ties to you is sort of being in the future. And what I love about your career narrative um, is once you sort of got that foundation, whether by luck, design, or both, you moved into areas where the industry was headed. And I know a very instrumental and ultimately ran as president of Optimum, which was very, very much ahead of its time. 
Yeah. And again, a lot of that comes from Jim Dolan, my partner in 605, um, where he really created the idea, you know, in working with a bunch of others, they did come up with the triple play as, you know, TV, phone and internet. And then, you know, it was Jim's baby was really to do um, to do optimum Wi-Fi. So to create this mesh network of what, you know, was designed to be free Wi-Fi at the time for all optimum customers. And the goal there was to really allow people to you know, engage as much as possible with the products to, to work on retention. Because at the time, you know, in the early aughts, um, Verizon had just come into town and was overbuilding, you know, Cablevision was overbuilt by Verizon more than any other operator in, in the country at the time. And so this idea of creating a mesh network where we had some really interesting IP to connect, you know, in-house um, Wi-Fi with, um, you know, business class hotspots that were in in the different stores and the places that we served with our business product, and then also create that um, with a backbone that could connect to the um, the strand mount Wi-Fi access point. So the goal was really to have a comprehensive Wi-Fi network that would stay, you know, so you weren't dropping in and out as you moved from your home to a store to, you know, to outside your kid's school. So lots and lots of entrepreneurial ideas that came out of, of Cablevision um, with Jim in particular. And then also we talk about mentors and internships, like my, the person I consider to be probably my most um, beloved mentor um, was Wilt Hildenbrand, who was the CTO and head of engineering for Cablevision for 40 years. So he taught me a lot, a lot, a lot about a lot of things, um, sometimes in a terse manner, but you know, to know him was to love him. So. <laughs> Did you take to the technology? Because I think of you as someone who really has finger on the pulse knowledge about the current state of technology and as important how we got there. But you've got this, you know, very heady academic literature. You've got a very different background. Did you take to the technology quickly or was that something you had to work hard at? You know, it, to me, like if it can be visualized or there's a narrative around the technology, I can understand it. Um, but again, was blessed to have so many great people at Cablevision and you really and beyond that are still in the industry. You know, Stephanie Mitchko is the CTO at Charter now um, and a bunch of other people that really could, I'd be like, explain it to me in a way that I can understand, which was helpful then because I was doing product management and marketing at the time. So like if they could explain it to me in a way that I could understand, I could then fold it into the messaging that was going out to the consumer base because so much of this was really new and interesting. You know, people would say, what's this Wi-Fi that you're launching? And we're like, no, it's Wi-Fi and here's what it does. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, we really did some cool stuff there. There's some regrets. There's things I wish we had done that we didn't get a chance to do that I think would have really, um, born a lot of fruit um, with the company. But overall, you know, Cablevision, I think, was known throughout the industry for being pioneers in a lot of different things that we did from a technological perspective. Um, so it was, I mean, I learned so much there and got exposure to so many people. You know, we also had the newspaper. So between the cable system, the internal programming networks that we had, the relationships with Madison Square Garden and with AMC networks as they spun off, um, you know, it was close to 20,000 people that worked for the various iterations of the company. And I really got the chance to spend time literally and figuratively with, with a lot of those people. What was something you wanted to do that you didn't? Ha, I knew you were going to ask me that. This one drives me crazy to this day. One of the things that we had on the product roadmap that we never got done was we wanted to integrate your contacts from your cell phone into the telephone service optimum, the optimum phone service, right? So it was being able to use the landline phone um, so you'd have that quality of service, but you could single touch dial, right? So if we married those two together and you could have all your contacts that you scroll through on your cell phone, but you could hit a button and dial it on the landline phone. So you actually had a good connection to me was something that would have really helped, you know, with stickiness, because even now I have terrible signal at my house, but I'm like, I'm not going to go look up the number, punch in the number, dial it on the landline. Um, and, you know, so one, it's one of those things where like, oh, if we had only done that, it would have been super helpful. But, you know, some of the other things we did were really, you know, sort of really cutting edge to put, you know, to keep the modem separate from the router um, to, you know, different decisions that you made around 
the the technology that you would employ based on the type of service area that we had and you know and and dealing with mdus and really having um you know some of these apartment complexes in some of the urban markets but then also these sprawling homes out in the hamptons or in on the jersey shore and trying to figure out technology that would be sort of flexible enough to embrace both situations, right? Particularly when you got into Wi-Fi, because you think about the idiosyncrasies of like some of the buildings in New York that used to be, you know, mansions that were then chunked up into many apartments. And so the, the walls were very thin. So when the signal's bouncing all over and you have five or six accounts in that one, what used to be one house, and you're trying to have separate Wi-Fi connectivity and not have people steal um, and also have a great experience, that's very different than taking, you know, a 10,000 square foot home in the Hamptons and making sure that, you know, the person that lives there has great connectivity in every single room. But it still all needs to be supported by the same back end and ideally the same equipment that's in home. So problem sets like that were... You know, interesting to explore. And, and I used to like going out often to meet um, with the field service technicians and also to the call centers to, you know, really work through how they manage what become what became a really complicated, you know, process. Cause a lot of the the call center reps started out, again, cable vision was around for 40 years and they had a lot of employees that were there for a very long time. And so you'd go talk to these reps who are like, you know, it was a lot for them to even pitch HBO because they were just used to answering the phone and helping people with their bills. And then it was like, now you want us to pitch pay services. Now we have to talk about pay-per-view. Now we have to sell, you know, modem service. What's that? You know, what's IP connectivity? And then, you know, digital phone and ultimately, you know, video on demand and some of these other things. And then explain the value of Wi-Fi. So you took what was originally a pretty straightforward position that people could do with a minimal amount of training and then scale it up to have them be multi-product. And then in our footprint, you know, multilingual. So we had reps that spoke, you know, four or five different languages you know, spread out all over the call centers because the footprint for New York City has, you know, many people with many different languages. So it's fascinating group and really interesting sort of management challenge to, to support the cable system and to support the employee base and to support the customer base that we had. So a lot to learn. What a, what a complicated web. So one of the things that I always wonder in looking at the current sort of content and technology landscape, you'll remember as do I, when Netflix was a DVD company, mm -hmm. you'd get it, you'd have to not lose the envelope <laughs> and, then, and then send it back. And I always wondered if in the early days, Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos and the, the people at the top of Netflix knew uh, what was coming. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask that question to you because you were in the room where it was happening as all this technology and as the pipe, if you will, was getting bigger and allowing for more and more to go through it. Did you and your team at Cablevision, Optimum, the whole ball of wax, did you have a good feel for what was coming in terms of the consumer ease and the way that this has all evolved? I think to some extent, a little bit. I mean, with Netflix, it was interesting because the thing we always sort of focused on was they only had 5% margins in the beginning. And we're like, how does this business grow? They're spending, you know, at the time when they first crossed a billion dollars in content creation. And we're like, you know, they're spending so much. And it was whatever it was at the time, $4.99 a month. And, you know, and trying to get the word out on that. Um, but for us, I mean, I think we knew that we had to keep scaling up. Um, as far as our ability to deliver more through the IP side of the spectrum, the, the, you know, the internet protocol side, right? So when you look at the cable system, you have, I'm going to get this wrong, so all the engineers will complain to you, but something along the lines of like zero megahertz to 750 megahertz, right? The cable system was built. And you can allocate portions of that spectrum, especially at the higher ends, to different products, right? So what we started to do was employ different technologies where, the traditional video product was squeezed down a little bit more so that we could make more room for broadband, right? And then for digital phone on top of that. And so there definitely was some planning and adjustment around how much spectrum would be allocated to each of the product sets. So I think we did see, you know, as the internet started to evolve and people started, you know, 
bringing modems in home and even pre-Wi-Fi that the consumption was going to continue to grow. And it was, you know, it was like downloading a video file, you know, that used to take forever or, you know, um, but I don't know that we actually conceptualized the volume of streaming that would occur um, over the over the cable system. But one of the other big things, you know, Jim was was famous for um, at one point saying we're, we were going to garner $500, $500 worth um, of RPS, revenue per subscriber, from each home eventually, from all the different things we would sell them. And Cablevision opted not to do alarm system, you know, security. We, we decided not to do that, which I was happy about when I was running the um, product at the time, because I just, the thought of messing something up when somebody had an emergency in their home, like it's one thing if somebody doesn't get the end of a pay-per-view event or they have some other issue, but for for me personally, like the having potentially life and death situations as part of our responsibility and servicing the home felt pretty daunting. So I, I wasn't disappointed that we didn't do home security. Um, but, you know, there are always forward thinking plans around what the network could and couldn't support and trying to kind of stay ahead of the curve as to what would and wouldn't be required in order to really give customers an experience that would allow them to stay with us. But I think the other thing was having Verizon come in and Fios is, you know, it's an acronym or whatever for, for fiber optic service. And so they came in really hot and heavy um, starting in Massapequa on Long Island and, you know, that was their claim to fame was really it's fiber optic, it's fiber to the home as opposed to fiber to the curb. And so they were really talking about what that meant for the consumer. So I think in some ways that also influenced, you know, what we what we planned for the network. And so I think, you know, it, it was a little bit of both. I wouldn't say we could see around corners, but I, a lot of time and energy was spent thinking about what's the next big thing. Yeah. And consumers have been the beneficiaries of all these advancements. For sure. For sure. And, the, you know, and then the, the other big thing that we did, which, you know, now I think people are, are also, you know, have been thinking along the same line for the last maybe five years is that when you really look at the true margins for each of those products, right, because this came up today, I was talking to somebody about streaming, um, the video products has a low margin, you know, you're paying a ton of money to the programmers, well-deserved, right, for all the content they create to put on all of those networks. Um, and so you have that that you're that you're spending, and then the service support for video is a lot more expensive than it is for IP, you know, IP connectivity, right? So really, the internet service is a much better product and has much better margins for most of these companies than video does. But at the time when when Jim first started to say this about ten years ago, it was blasphemous because you know we were cable TV was cable TV, right? So, you know, delivering internet service is a whole different thing and not as interesting, right? You're just supplying a pipe, whereas content was king. You know, there was always this back and forth. It's content that matters. No, it's the delivery that matters. But really, you know, we came out and said, look, we started firing customers. Like we went to a place where we said, you know, this triple play and pricing wars is a race to the bottom. And we started to do analysis around how many times people would spin from Fios to us, to DirecTV to us, to Dish to us. And, and realized after a time that there were certain customers that we would never make our money back on. And so we elected to not take them back and really you know, shrunk down to some degree um, the total subscribers that we had for the cable system. But we sort of kept the ones that we knew would be accretive over time and said no thanks to the ones that were basically you know, just using us as a way to get a lower price someplace else. So you know, from a marketing and advertising perspective, that was also a really fascinating time. Amazing story. Um, can we talk a little about all your work as a board member on various companies? To the extent I'm legally permitted, yes. <laughs> no forward-looking information. <laughs> we'll try to uh, not uh, get in trouble with the SEC. So you, I guess the first board that you sat on, rising from intern uh, to a member of the board of AMC, give or take about 10, 12 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, that must have been a moment when you were sitting in your first AMC Networks board meeting when you in your own mind harken back to those early days as an intern. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that moment for me, um, there was a different moment that really harkened back to the internship. And that was um, 
one time we were doing a meeting. So the Myron family, who people will know, they were Bright House Communications. Um, and before that, you know, new channels, cable systems all over upstate New York, predominantly in Syracuse. Um, and it's a family that was really the Newhouse family. So um, Cy Newhouse and all the publishers. So remember I said I worked at Random House. And then when, when the Myron family um, also had new channels and ultimately Bright House, they would do a round with their, um, with their board members and they'd go visit all the different companies that were in the space each year. So I remember at Cablevision one time I went to this meeting and one whole side of the table was Dolan's and the other whole side was Myron's and new houses. And I'm thinking back to when I was 24 years old working at Random House and saying, gosh, you know, back in the day, like, you know, Mr. Newhouse's office was on the top floor, right? I would never have had a chance to go up to Mr. Newhouse's office. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting in this boardroom at Cablevision, you know, fast forward 25 years and we're all in the room and we're talking about what's coming next and where everybody's going. And it was just one of those moments in my life where I was like, wow, come a long way. So, but AMC, yeah, for sure. It's, it's a great board. It's fascinating. Um, you know, Matt Blank is the interim CEO now and with all his experience at Showtime, he's always fun to listen to. And, you know, and having Josh still there as vice chairman and sort of his vision and, and his amazing, you know, prescience to think about signing shows like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and Walking Dead and Mad Men and all the amazing content that he helped facilitate. You know, it's, it's fun to talk to people like that. Let's talk about Josh Shapan a little because I think he does not get talked about enough. A, an incredible career, an incredible visionary, and you got a chance to be, you know, side by side with Josh for many, many years. Yeah, I had lunch with him last week. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's really incredible and the most humble person you ever want to meet. I mean, he's just, he's a natural um intellect, right? He just, he loves to learn. He loves to read. He loves, he's fascinated by people and the human experience. And uh, I really can't say enough good things about Josh. And and he continues to this day to be as curious as he was, you know, the first time I met him 30 something years ago. So if you ever get a chance to have lunch or a drink with Josh, like I heartily encourage you to take him up on it. I met him on stage a few times because I'm still friendly with Christine Bragan. I speak to Christine mm -hmm. all the time at AMC. Yeah, another great, another great person. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we think the world of her. Uh, and um, I'll let you go any way you want, but between Revlon uh, or Wendy's, we'll, we'll talk about the garden uh, as its own uh, entity, if you will. But that's got to be fascinating to be on the board of two incredible companies like that. Yeah, amazing. Like I've been so blessed. Uh, it's been almost four years on both of those boards. And so, you know, starting with Revlon, just an amazing brand that's been around forever. Um, and with both Revlon and Wendy's, you know, the, the chairman in those companies sort of have Ronald Perlman as chairman in one and Nelson Peltz as chairman in the other. Like if you grew up in New York, like these are two sort of titans of industry, right? So to be at the table and watch them do what they do um, is really quite interesting. For, you know, for me, I'm also sort of a, a perpetual student. So, you know, I always like, I focus on operations and product and marketing and advertising and, you know, both Ronald and Nelson are, are financial people. Like they really, you know, they can look at this stuff and, you know, just find the one little thing in, in the board deck that, you know, they really want to dig into because they're just, they intuitively know so much about business. Um, and now with, um, with Revlon, uh, Debbie Perlman, Ronald's daughter, has been running Revlon as CEO for the past few years and just an incredible talent, um, a wonderful person and, and very uh, philanthropic with Child Mind Institute. That was her creation. Um, and then really being a woman who leads a team of women in this, you know, sort of historic brand is, is another really fun thing to, to experience. And then Wendy's completely different to learn about the restaurant model, you know, and both Wendy's and Revlon are global businesses. So there's a lot that I get to see and experience about what's going on in the rest of the world. But Wendy's is super fascinating. Um, you know, the number of franchisees with 13,000 restaurants, you know, around the world and understanding, you know, having board meetings where they have to talk about, you know, what's the price of lettuce and what's going on with hothouse tomatoes and then getting deep into, you know, advertising because they're in such a competitive category with, you know, quick serve restaurant and, you know, another great leadership team there. So for me, like just sitting and observing the different ways that that companies are run um, and participating. So like Wendy's, I'm on the technology board, Revlon, I'm on uh, the technology committee, and then Revlon, I'm on the audit committee. 
Um, so you get to also dive in deep on some of these other things. It has been really fascinating. We'll come back to the garden, but let's talk about 605. Okay. I love the way you position it as an independent TV measurement firm. And you have three words in particular that you uh, put out there about the company, reliable, accurate, and objective. Yep. And that space is fraught with sentiments that are not reliable, accurate, or objective. Did you see a gap that you thought you could fill Give us the 605 origin story, because as much time as we spent together, I don't think I've ever heard that. <laughs> All right. Um, so again, born out of Cablevision, which had, you know, a company that had many babies. Um, so at, at Cablevision in probably around 2000, I'm going to date myself, I don't even know. Yeah, about 2007, 2008, we started collecting in a privacy compliant way all of the viewership data um, that was coming from the set-top boxes. So it was a two-way network and all of the channel changes would come back upstream. So we started collecting them at 1%, then at 10%, and then at 100%, right? So basically every single time somebody pushed the remote control um, other than volume, but any channel tuning, up, down, duration, all of that, we were capturing. And we started to use that information, again, privacy compliant um, for our ad sales team. So Cablevision had a separate group called Cablevision Media Sales that sold about $3 million worth of local advertising in the marketplace every year. So you see like everyone I think knows the difference. You see a beautiful national spot and then occasionally it's overlaid with something that might be pretty good for your local Ford dealer or something, or it might be really cheesy for like a scrap metal company or a local dentist office or whatever you can see. You can kind of tell which ones are the local spots and which are the nationals, but that was a really big business. And so the challenge was the cable system, the cable company usually gets somewhere around two minutes per hour of avails that they can sell where they overlay those national spots with the local spots. And so a lot of those networks were not measured by Nielsen at the time. So if we wanted to sell advertising on a network that was below 25 million, you had to kind of just set a price, right? So some of these networks, you could buy spots for five bucks you know, five bucks across per thousand, like really, really low. Um, and so when we started aggregating the viewership information, we were able to then at least give advertisers a sense of the number of impressions that their spots were going to get on that network, even though it wasn't measured by Nielsen. And so by doing that, we were able to monetize a lot of the long tail content, right? The networks that don't get as much viewership, but might have very specific dedicated audiences that could be valuable to an advertiser. So we, you know, we monetize the long tail content. We were able to charge more for the spots because we were giving people an actual count of who saw that who saw their commercials and then we were also able to preserve that primetime inventory that other people insisted they wanted no matter what they would pay right for the MTV video awards or for the NCAAs so we were able to preserve that for the people that really wanted to pay a lot for it so in doing this over the course of a few years we learned technologically how to aggregate those large amounts of data but also saw the impact on our local media sales, which was a 23%. I still remember the number because we did a study with McKinsey to see, could we scale this into a national business, right? So basically we saw a 23% lift on our local ad sales revenue in, in our footprint. And then we said, okay, we should spin this into a national company and partner with our brethren. Cause again, collegial kind of industry and do this on a national basis. So we started working on this spin of this product, which, you know, the, the new company we called the internal name was Data Co Ventures. You know, you always assign these crazy names to these initiatives. And we were just about to go um, spin it out. And then we got the offer, um, the family got the offer from Altice um, to purchase Cablevision. And so it was pencils down at that point. So can't spin anything off when you're in the middle of a sale. So we spent a year migrating, you know, and, and handing the cable company over to Altice. And then when we left that business, we said, well, this is still a really good idea. So maybe we should stand up another company. And so that Data Co Ventures name, I tried to trademark for the new company and was told it was too generic. So I took the D, the C and the V and translated in from Roman numerals to Arabic numerals. So DCV is actually 605. So we named the company 605 as like a secret nod back 
to where it came from and basically went and spoke with our friends at Charter um, and then eventually brought in other data partners. So what 605 does now is we aggregate about 22 million households worth of impression data. So every night we upload, this is one of my favorite stats, we upload the equivalent of 9,000 years of linear content um, at night. We upload all of that viewership every single night, um, which is about 1.2 billion viewing ad exposure and other events every day. And we have them in this massive database. It's all anonymized um, to a household level. It's privacy compliant. And we use that viewership information to help people understand the impact of their advertising. And you're neither buying nor selling media. Exactly. That's where, to your point, the neutral comes in, right? And the unbiased. So, you know, we, we do a lot of studies for people. We have, you know, um, SaaS products that people can activate themselves on their desktop or we'll do the work for them. But we'll tell people, okay, you advertise for your restaurant. It was seen by this many people. Um, this is how they responded. And we can even then look at foot traffic um, and say, okay, and this is how many went to the restaurant, right? So you can look at exposed and unexposed to the media and say, okay, this is the Delta, right? This is the 50% of your advertising that did work. Um, and so we basically, we look at everything from, you know, planning and optimization to measurement of what happened, which is important, but the real thing now and the big buzzwords you hear are about attribution and ultimately prediction. So we want to, you know, we tell people now how well their ads worked and then ultimately, you know, with, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can start to predict, okay, if you do that campaign, next year or against you know this target audience we can start to predict the outcomes of what the what the media is actually going to do for the advertiser so it's it's super fascinating but being neutral and not selling media means you know sometimes the the campaigns just don't work and so that's not always fun to go and tell somebody well your media actually had an inverse effect or a negative effect but usually we can tease out some interesting insights that said well it maybe didn't do as well as you'd hoped against the target that you selected, but guess what? Here's an, un, you know, an untapped other segment that for whatever reason responded really well and you never even knew they were potential customers of yours. So let's, let's you know, lather, rinse and repeat and try different test and learn scenarios until you start to really refine the target segment that you're pursuing and you know, add in things like what's the best offer, what's the best creative, what's the best media schedule, and you start to get really sophisticated about what advertising can do. And the word trust is a big part of 605. And you touched on privacy uh, compliant earlier. It seems like you can do all these things and not breach trust. Yeah. Yet, yet that issue and those that are breaching trust in the digital environment is a very big problem for the industry. Do you think it's a choice uh, or do you think there are just bound to be problems given what's going on out there? I, I happen to believe that it's a choice and starts with leadership and a commitment from leadership, but I'd love your take. Yeah, I'd say it's a little bit of both. I mean, coming from cable, we have the Telecom Act from, you know, way back when. So when I was talking about aggregating the viewership information for, from Cablevision, right, we weren't even allowed based on the Telecom Act. We couldn't even use that to target potential subscribers to Newsday, even though we own both companies, because you're not allowed to use that information, um, you know, in a, in a way that allows you to target people you know, on a single household basis, right? So we, even though we partner with digital partners who have different parameters, we basically have always adhered to as if we were, because we're working with Charter and other MVPDs that are also ISP, you know, providing, um, providing internet services, right? So they have to be, everybody has to be very careful. And we, so we are extremely conservative in what we use the data for and the fact that it can never be backwards appended to figure out who a person is. Everything's done in, you know, in a safe haven or in a clean room or whatever. Um, so it's basically when we have the viewership data, it's household A, right? Or household A, B or household one, two, three. And then it goes into a clean room and it can be compared with any other data, but it never says, you know, Matt Schechner, one, two, three, any town street, right? So that's important. But I think the other part, which the horses have kind of left the barn, is on the digital side, 
every time somebody wants an app, like who actually reads the terms and conditions, right? So, and, and you know, we all have younger family members and you see they have no real concern about privacy. It's just a different generation, right? So I think there are plenty of people out there that say I'd absolutely sacrifice my privacy in exchange for X, you know, insert X app here or, you know, search results or whatever. I'm going to accept every cookie, even now when it actually forces you to, 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 you know, intentionally accept a cookie, like we're all signing up for it. So I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that the digital teams are, are less concerned about privacy. I just think they've never had to live with that, with that construct. Whereas, you know, coming from old school television, like it's, it's just sort of bred into us. And so we'd rather be more conservative than less, but, um, you know, it's fascinating. And with the demise of the cookie and, you know, and privacy laws, you know, particularly in states like California, where your IP address is actually considered to be personally identifiable information. Like there's a lot of things that, that could change some of this industry, but um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, no, this is a big watch this space. And you're right. I mean, all of us are uh, in that click. I agree just to keep going with yeah. whatever it is that we may be trying to do. And there are, there are positive repercussions to that and not positive repercussions to that. I mean, ultimately, I think if we can get really good at targeting and segmentation, um, I do believe, and I've said this in Europe a lot on panels, is that I think Americans really do understand and support the relationship of like, either I pay for something and it's ad free, or there's this quid pro quo where I'm willing to watch some ads in exchange for the content that I love to, you know, that I love to view. And NBCU, I think, has done a great job with, with Peacock and looking at both ad supported and non ad supported, right? And so I think, I think that Americans are comfortable with that engagement. But I think if you get really good at, you know, this optimization and attribution and ultimately prediction, if you have to watch a couple of ads, but they're actually relevant to you, then it becomes in some ways, I think it's valuable um, as opposed to, you know, I'm 56 years old and a mother of two, I don't necessarily want to see a commercial for, you know, insert something irrelevant to me here. Right. But if it's something that reminds me or helps me or furthers, you know, my understanding of something um, that I might want to transact with a company I might want to transact with, then I think it's, it's actually added value. Um, so I think advertising is good in the right volume and with the right intention to the right person. Right. Well, well said. So we're now about five and a half years in at 605. And my observation is you are getting real traction and having a real impact on the market. I hope so. I mean, I think we have some amazing partners. Um, we work with a lot of the programming groups and and we're helping them, you know, in the way that we intended. We're helping them ensure that the advertising that they're that they're selling to people is really optimized and that they get some great insights out of it. Um, and then, you know, learning more and more. We have uh, Walmart is a big partner of ours. They've been with us since the beginning and helping them again with targeting and, and thinking through the best utilization of their media since they place a ton of media. Um, you know, we're about 150 employees now. It's it's exciting every day because we have all these bright young minds that come in and they're just, you know, they're thinking about methodologies and new ways to structure things. And and uh, so it's just, it's been, it's been fascinating. Um, but I don't think I have another startup in me. <laughs> it's just been, it's been a long haul. It's been a lot and, of fun, uh, but. I think, I think there's still a lot of energy over there. All right, so speaking <laughs> of uh, long hauls, Yes. You know, in your role as a member of the board of Madison Square Garden Entertainment, you were very involved in something that just a very recent announcement about an approval of what is the most ambitious thing I know of. Uh, <laughs> and I know there's one under construction in Las Vegas, the sphere, yes. which is something that's been uh, on your plate for quite some time now. Could you talk about that a little bit? And uh, absolutely just fascinating you know, taking experiential and technology to the next level. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the sphere, I'm hesitant to get too much into it because I'll get in trouble if I don't say, if I don't explain it right, but the sphere is almost indescribable. So what the sphere is, is it's really going to be, and there's one in Las Vegas that's opening in September of 23. It's really the venue of the future. So it's unlike anything else you've seen or experienced before. So, um, you know, there's 
all five of your senses are activated when you when you will attend any event at the sphere, right? So it's the screens are almost 360 degrees around. It's about a thousand times the size and the um, quality of an IMAX film, right? So this content, you know, visually is unbelievable. And then the technology that's being applied to each individual seat in the venue, um, there's haptic flooring, so the floors can move. There's um, what they call point beam audio, so that each seat actually gets a separate audio feed directly to that seat, not with wearing any sort of headphones or anything like that, but it actually can point beam. So you can be in one seat and somebody, you know, four feet to your right could be listening to a completely different audio track for, you know, they could be listening to the same show in Spanish while you're listening to it in English. You can have individual adjustments to the audio um, in your seat that you can, you know, use your device to, to control. And then, you know, things like, um, you know, they can put things like steam or different like aromas can be piped into the venue as well. So the idea is to really activate um, immersive technology in a, in a physical destination. And so thinking through like the types of events that might appear there if an artist is coming to do a concert right that they would we have um, msg entertainment has bought a studio um, out in california and they've created if anybody uh, flies out to burbank you'll see this big golf club golf ball looking thing at the end of the runway in burbank and that's something called the big dome which is a a quarter of the size of the sphere but they're using that to trial and to test all the different um, aspects of this immersive technology. Um, they've created cameras that shoot 360 degrees and actually one of the sphere cameras has been approved to go up to um, the space station and it's going to be up there. They're, they're one of the few uh, things that are being sent up there. And so it's, it's really, I, I would just encourage everybody to Google it and see what it's going to be because I, you know, I've had a fair amount of demos and I still struggle to explain it. Like Jim's really the one that explains it the best, um, but it's going to be incredible. And so the one in Vegas opens, as I said, September 23, and then the company just got permissions, um, the first wave of permissions for approval to build one um, in London as well, outside of London. So it's, it's really cool. And so the idea, again, of creating content that's specific to optimize all of these capabilities within this type of venue um, and then hopefully monetize that over multiple spheres around the world over time is, you know, just, just the next big idea. <laughs> from Another example of, of Kristen Dolan living in the future. And, well, by uh, association, but yes. <laughs> no, no, I know what a key role you played here. And this has been a joy to talk to you. And I, I hope I didn't torture you too badly. No, I really appreciate it, Matt. This was great fun. Thank you so much. So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.